0: Small business financial services are only 1% finished. Our latest research examines the jobs to be done and cultural insights on what U.S. business owners need and the digital services that will help them meet their goals. Download the research for free by heading to bit.ly forward slash D-I-G-I-T-A-L-S-M-B. This report is outstanding, folks. That's bit.ly forward slash digital SMB, all lowercase. From 11FS, this is Fintech Insider News. This week, we bring you Shopify's stratospheric rise and their foray into fintech. A Bank of America leak exposes business details of PPP relief applicants. And Animal Crossing is providing a new way for people to make money during the lockdown. All this and much more on today's show. Welcome to episode 431 of FinTech Insider. I'm Sam Maul, and today I'm joined by my colleague and co-host, the legendary David Brayer. How are you doing, David? Pretty good, pretty good. Uh,
1: I'm sort of stuck in between this. It's getting nice outside. I'm not allowed to go outside, but it's getting like it's this sort of weird sort of vibe going on right now. So uh, I'm looking forward to summer, but also terrified. I'm basically going to be spending most of it inside in my house. So
0: other than that, pretty good. It's uh, the thing I loved about the UK when I lived there. If the sun came out, everybody went to the beach. I made the mistake of going into the water at Scarborough. And I understand why no one swims. I think I lost a limb in that cold ass water. I mean, you
1: need to have your shots before you do it for sure. And I mean, the sad reality is we only get like two days of summer a year. So like um, watching it through the window is going to be pretty sad. But uh, other than that, thanks for asking, Sam.
0: You're welcome, David. And as normal, we're joined remotely by awesome guests for the show, and we have a stellar lineup today, people. We are blessed all making their FinTech Insider News debut. We have my good friend, Scott Harkey, Chief Strategy Officer and Head of Payments at Level.
2: How are you, Scott? Hey, Sam. Doing great. How's Charlotte? Charlotte is nice, and we are allowed to go outside, whether we should be or not. It's maybe a different question, but Enjoying the weather here lately since I, I know you guys like to talk about weather. That's it's what we do. That's what you do on Zoom, right? It's the same thing. Uh, give us a quick 20-second
0: overview of Level. What is it you all do?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So U.S.-based uh, business and technology consulting company. Do a lot of work with financial institutions and others in that space, but also work across industries leveraging technology to transform businesses. That's, that's the heart of it at the end of the day.
0: Well done. That was uh, 17 seconds. All right, our next guest my good friend, Ben Metz, or as I like to call him, Ben Mertz, the Senior Managing Director at Jack Henry, the fintech guru at large at Bano. Welcome to the show. Can you give us a quick history on Bano and Jack Henry?
3: Yeah, so I I came to Jack Henry, via acquisition uh, six years ago. Um, uh, That was Bano, so Jack Henry acquired Bano six years ago. Um, since then, uh, we've been building a banking as a service platform uh, on top of Jack Henry's core systems, just a quick background on Jack Henry. Um, they were, I believe one of the first technology firms on the NAC on the software companies on the NASDAQ. Um, so they would be a legacy FinTech, um, servicing about 9,000, um, uh, community financial institutions that would be out of 10,400. So a lot of customers, um. Um, and I've been here, I think, six years now.
0: And uh, for every year, he gets yet another sleeve tattoo. And that's why we love you, Ben. Uh, recording this live from his farm and barn in Iowa. And last but not least, the legendary Mia Bittner, head of business operations at Chime. How are you? How you doing, Maya?
4: Hey, Sam. It's Maya, though. You got to get my name right.
0: Did I say Mia? Uh,
4: you said Mia. It's a very uh. common mistake. Um, I've actually got a back and forth with someone right now where they tag, I have a colleague at time whose name is Mia. And so I'll comment and they'll tag Mia in reply and I'll reply and they will tag Mia again. And I said, you know, it's, it's Maya, it's M-A-I-A and I'm right here. So it's, it's cause of endless confusion at time.
0: Yeah, I get that all the time, too, um, with Sam. People confuse the that. pronunciation. It's amazing, especially David. Um, all right, everybody, let's jump in. Let's get this going. I, we, we have to give Chime a shout-out because uh, y'all have been killing it. Uh, roughly, how many uh, customers are you up to now? Bragged so a we got bit. 8
4: million accounts. I there think that's our, our latest active number. Yeah, largest U.S.-based neobank. So there wow. you go. So there's the shout-out. And I'm that has scaled to a lot
1: it. as well. I mean, last last number I saw was 5 million. So you guys are uh, just uh, acquiring customers uh, hand,
0: like so quickly right now.
4: Yeah, I think we're really doing something that's resonating with
0: people. All right. So great shout out for Chime. Um, and same for Jack Henry, same for Level. And 11FS. We're awesome too, everybody. So there you go. Right, David? Yeah, I mean, how, it's, a, it's, it's turning into a love-in this week, Sam. What's going on? <laughs> and and we, too, have 8 million customers at this point, <laughs> so uh, we're going to go with that number. All right, let's jump into the news and get everybody's opinion on some really cool stories. First off, payment solutions are enabling online commerce during tough times. So we want to start today's show by covering a group of announcements this week showing how e-commerce has blown up more than ever since the COVID pandemic and also offering financial solutions, too. So starting with Shopify and their wealth of announcements in the past week. So our first story is e-commerce platform Shopify to launch Shopify Balance for Business. So this story comes to us from FinTech Futures. Shopify, the Canadian e-commerce company, has announced the intimate launch of Shopify Balance, a no-fee banking account designed for independent businesses. It's set to arrive in the U.S. sometime later this year. The account accessed through the Shopify admin allows merchants to see their cash flows, pay bills, and track expenses. There's no minimum balance required to open an account. Merchants will be issued a physical or virtual card when they use online, in-store, or at ATMs. They also announced the launch of Buy Now, Pay Later option to rival Klarna and PayPal, a local delivery service, in partnership with Facebook. So this has been a massive week for them. The partnership with Facebook means they'll become part of Facebook Shops, which lets merchants create online shops on Instagram and Facebook. So the way I would summarize it, Shopify now is the greatest um, addition from Canada into the S since Ryan Reynolds, in my opinion. david what do you think about shopify the news we're seeing
1: i mean it's it's interesting isn't it i mean it's playing into this whole narrative of like everything is fintech right now so actually i mean i I find it weird with shopify why do they always point out that it's a canadian outfit when they do it it just seems so uh such a strange like tagline to everything that they do because they're they're doing such an amazing job scaling in the way that they're doing it's almost like it's good for Canada. Do you know what I mean, it it just seems like a strange uh, a strange kind of add on. But um, but no, I definitely feel like the um, this sort of transition into now anybody can get into fintech, and you know if you've got a big enough customer base bringing uh, through with a big enough brand that actually can sort of pivot
0: into something else, then um, fintech's fair game for everybody at this stage. Well, Maya, as the banker representative, that has to be the first time I've probably said that um to you but up for this podcast you are the banker representative is this the right time for them to get into banking i mean
4: i think it's smart i actually i i love their bank account i think it makes a ton of sense to have a bank account that's focused on an e-commerce business and on this like very specific type of business opportunity and who do you think their main competitors are for the bank account like is it novo and mercury or do you think it's like chase and wells fargo
2: man that's i mean scott how would you reply to that yeah, I think it's definitely Novo and Mercury. I think if I you look at the the typical bank, they, they're not, I'll say this, they're not interested in serving the small, small business, right? It, it's not economical for them to do so. So I don't know that they're working real hard to chase after the the true small one, two person business that is the like bread and butter of Shopify. So I, I think they're hitting on a market that needs help and can really use it. and I, And I do think it's a really well positioned product. I mean, yeah. it's, I think-
1: it's interesting, isn't it? Because, I mean, in, in that size of business, the thing you do first is not set your bank account up, right? It is build a website. It's like build out, you know, a customer base. It's, and then you start worrying about the stuff that you don't want to get into, which is, you know, banking so uh, I mean if they can they can sort of almost insert themselves in the value chain that high up in it, it it makes a lot of sense doesn't it but it's very short-sighted I think like you say in terms of those big banks uh, not serving this group of people because you never really know which organization is going to or which company is going to grow to a certain scale that actually can be profitable and arguably uh, to your point Scott is is that because of them uh, not being able to make those guys profitable because of where their operational cost is, really, rather than the fact that, I mean, if you strap enough small companies together, you can make anything profitable, can't you?
0: So I saw something interesting earlier today on on Twitter. Um, and uh, Ben, Whoa. I'd like to kind of get, yeah, you know, I was on Twitter. I apologize. Is it, is it related, like, Sam, or are you about to go on like a really weird tangent about like a picture a, of a, We're going on a Ben tangent. So Ben, I'd kind of like to get your feedback on this because uh, Brian Cladgett, um uh, those in the fintech space in the U.S. probably know Brian from uh, Gizio. Um, but he, he noted that uh, in a report that he just saw that uh, April saw 200 percent jump in new mobile banking registrations while mobile banking traffic rose 85 percent, according to FIS. And Ben, I mean, with Bano, you guys were doing mobile banking back before it was ever cool, unlike you. I mean, are, are you surprised by Shopify going to this or even that surge we're seeing in registrations from a mobile standpoint?
3: <clears throat> Not at all. I mean, um, just just with the checks that got printed, um, that forced a lot of folks uh, just have to have to go find the mobile app for their bank, and so they can use RDC. So, I mean, I don't, I don't know. I just, I think that's sort of stating the obvious that this would happen. Um, no, no. I know Brian. Uh, no, fa- no offense to Brian, but that's just sort of Captain Obvious kind of stuff. In terms of Shopify, um, and you guys called it out in your post, and and I was reading in some of your material, is that I think if you're a banker, you know that people run businesses on retail accounts, and you have a general feel for actually what those stats are. Uh, Shopify said two out of five. I actually think it's likely higher than that, um, and and bankers know this. And so what I was saying about abdication, and I'm going to speak generally um, not specifically, uh, is that uh, uh, effectively, uh, there's been a large, writ large abdication. This is what Scott was saying earlier. Uh, there's been a writ large abdication uh, for small uh, business. And it's shocking what the word small actually means. We were having that discussion as well um, off the recording. Uh, it's sort of shocking what small actually means, especially to a larger FI. Um, and so uh, I, I, think, I think what Shopify is, is doing here is they're actually building a wedge into a market that's completely abdicated. And what I was saying was uh, abdicate this market at your own peril. That would be my message to financial institutions.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, some of the reference material that Ben was talking about. So we had a recent report on the SMB landscape in the U.S. We found that Shopify was the 10th most used platform for any kind of financial services job by SMBs with PayPal and QuickBooks at number one. So this suggests that Shopify has got a lot of room to grow. And more importantly, we found that Shopify was jointly second with QuickBooks for solving the problems SMBs face today. with was strike being first, Bank of America 6th, Wells Fargo 10th. So, um, Scott, to Ben's point, this idea of driving a wedge in that is incredibly in a space that is somewhat narrow but incredibly deep, that's a great approach. And it's also, a, um, I'd say, a warning signal for banks in the U.S.
2: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting how similar it is to Square, uh, in that you know, from a product standpoint of what they're both offering at this point, they are they're pretty on par in terms of the product set. But Square came at it from the completely different side, right? Of let's focus on the payment processing part—that's the core business—and then expand into other areas off of that. Versus Shopify coming at it from you know, let's focus on the the enabling the store but they both found their way to the same set of products. I think that's telling, right? Like in that they're, yeah. they're both chasing the gaps in the market and have kind of centered on these are the areas where banks and other you know, service providers are not servicing these businesses in a way that we can.
0: Maya, were you surprised at just the sheer volume of announcements Shopify made when we're talking about product?
4: I was. I was really excited. Um, I'm a huge Shopify fan, really excited just to, to see all their stuff. But honestly, I think they rushed it. Um, A lot of the announcements, I was really disappointed about Uh, the Facebook announcement. So, I mean, the reason I love the banking account that Shopify came out with is I love entrepreneurship. Like I have an entrepreneurship background. Mine is more the VC back style, but I love this like micro entrepreneurship where anyone can spin up a Shopify store and do something that they're passionate about. And I think that Shopify enabling these people, giving them a bank account, it's so cool Um, honestly, the bank account is kind of a commodity product. And so it should just be taken care of. Like you shouldn't have to be an expert in small business banking to be able to sell something on a Shopify store. You shouldn't have to be an expert in supply chain management or logistics or fulfillment. So I love the bank account. Um, honestly, a bunch of the other stuff was a huge disappointment. The Facebook integration, I thought that had so much potential and it felt really flat. It looks like something that a third party developer could have whipped together and just clobbered things. Um, the Arrive app or the Shop app now—I think it's called. I've been using it. Huge like amount of excitement about this. Like I would love to have all of my logistics on my phone. Um, I've actually been tweeting a bunch recently, complaining about how poorly built the Shop app is, how disappointing the data is, um, and and all the things around that. So I think they rushed it, and I don't know. I don't know why why the rush was.
0: You know what? That is great feedback, because for listeners that don't know, um, Maya is an incredible overachiever, as is everybody on this call. But uh, she actually started a company. um, I mean, we're coming out of university or maybe while you're still university. I don't remember. Roxbox? So, I mean, you've been in this space. You know, I have and I
4: had to innovate a lot to yeah. do that and and become it. I had to like get a merchant bank account in order to accept credit cards. And I had to get, you know, a bond in order to import things from China and all of these different things that it's like we were just trying to ship jewelry. And today I think there's a lot more tools that you can just get off the shelf to do that.
0: I mean, David, that's, that's a selling point we always do for 11FS, right? Is that we've walked in these shoes. We've done this. We're not talking theory when we're talking about digital transformation at large banks. I mean, like you're all at Lloyd's, right? Um, Yeah, uh, I mean, I think
1: 100%, 100%, I think if you've got empathy for the people you're trying to build things for in one form or another, you really, and and again, it comes back to the principle, if you really understand your customers, you've got a better chance of actually building something that's helpful for them. I'm I'm trying to figure out if I'm an underachiever or an overachiever, Sam. I I couldn't tell if that was like a a slight diss to everybody on this or whether it was a a compliment, but um, I'm going to take it as a compliment and let's just move on.
0: It is a compliment. This this little band of brothers and sisters on this podcast, I just named our band, band of brother and sisters, um, are all overachievers. And I think The experiences we've all had, and again, I'll just keep saying this for the folks listening, these are folks that have have lived this, that have come up with solutions that solve problems they had, and that's the type of feedback I love the best. So talking about customers and customer acquisition, our second story, Afterpay reaches 5 million active customers after two years in the U.S. market. So this comes out of a PR newswire. Afterpay is the leader in buy now, pay later payments, and they've announced that they have more than 5 million active shoppers in the U.S. and 15,000 brands. Nearly 9 million U.S. customers have joined the platform and more than a million new U.S. customers used Afterpay in the last 10 weeks since the pandemic hit the U.S. This represents a 30 to 40 percent increase in the weekly run rate from January to February. So on average, merchants see customer conversion rates increased by over 200 or by 20 percent. And the average order volumes increased by over 25 percent with Afterpay compared to all other payment methods. Um, I'm going to go to kind of a resident expert on this. And Maya, I'm coming right back to you with your, your background and you've done in, 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 the retail side of this, I mean, 5 million active customers after two years in the U S good job.
4: Yeah, I think, um, it, it, you know, it's been super impressive, but I don't know. I don't know that I have a, a lot to comment on in this side. Like what, what specifically do you want me to jam on?
0: Well, I, I get curious about the buy now pay later concept, right? Klarna has done this. We've seen that. Um, if I'm Jen Tescher from like the financial health network, and those guys, I'm going to say I hate this concept because now we're talking, you know, the potential of more consumer debt. and credit. I have a question for you. Yeah. Sorry
3: to butt in, Maya. But like, you know, if you were to start over in that same business you you were discussing earlier, like, would you use Afterpay? I mean, what would you think about in terms of that space? Which vendor would you go to? You know, um, you know, if you put yourself like, would you would you use Afterpay? You know, a firm client, we know the all the players like what would you put on your website
4: yeah it's a tricky question and so um you know when i think about this industry i think people expect me to have a different a different stance than i do and this is because so my second company pinch what we were doing is we were really helping people improve their credit score um and doing more inclusive things reporting rent payments things like that a very us centric problem um but it is from that experience people come to me and they often say like oh the credit bureaus are they're bonkers. They're broken. There's so many problems with the credit bureaus. but And this is this is true. There's totally room for improvement. But by and large, the credit bureaus are pretty good at what they do. And so that's always what I think To Like when I think about Afterpay and Klarna, um, I've had merchants come to me and say, Maya, is there any way that I can approve more people for Afterpay? Like we have all these people that get sent to Afterpay and they don't qualify. I could be making so much money if I could be selling them more mattresses. And what I say is I'm like, dude, this customer can't afford your mattress. Like that's why they don't qualify. They're not going to pay for it. Like it's not an increase in sales. So at Roxbox, would I have done an afterpay or a Klarna? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure. Like I, again, it's, it's, there's so much consumer debt people have. It's like, if they don't have the money to pay for it, they could have a credit card. I like the afterpay and Klarna kind of um, take away the risk and that the merchant isn't facing that risk. But philosophically, I'm not sure it's something that, that I can get behind.
0: David, I'm curious, because in the UK, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the buy now, pay later companies are coming under scrutiny from promoting irresponsible spending habits, increased debts in millennials, and so on and so forth. So do you think like Shopify and Afterpay face the same scrutiny? And I know the US is not the UK, but... I mean, definitely, I think Afterpay
1: will do. I know Klarna have definitely sort of faced a lot of scrutiny lately for exactly that point. It's like, look, if these people probably can't afford to to pay for it in another means, then, you know, uh, kind of not quite tricking them into, but allowing them to get into, you know, a bad place from a, from a debt perspective and, you know, picking that up at a, at a later cost, particularly in I think some of the places that these things are being integrated is, is more sort of very, uh, low end use, high volume things. Uh, I think it can definitely sort of cause some problems. And obviously from their perspective, that all cause a branding problem pretty quickly. So, um, we've had a lot of problems I think globally with, um, mis-selling of various different things. For anybody in the UK, PPI is like uh, essentially just something that was mis-sold to millions and millions of people. And uh, uh, definitely the people who were sweeping up those billion pounds of fines to to banks are looking for another opportunity to go
0: after those people. So uh, potentially this type of thing will be the next one of those. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see how this plays out. But one thing I think that we've definitely seen in the US when it comes to the pandemic and COVID-19 uh, it's definitely here, but it's not evenly distributed. Meaning, the the people that have been furloughed, the people that have been p- impacted, um, primarily have been I think it's under forty thousand um, in annual salary, so the, the lower end, and also much younger. Uh, uh, is I think predominantly demographics on that. So I, I do kind of think that anything that puts you um, slightly at risk around your your credit score, right, and what you're doing, I think we need to put an eye on that. Uh, Now we're going to move on to talk about PPP relief, which seems to be an unavoidable trend on this show recently (laughs) and in the U.S. But in this case, just to spice things up, we have a data breach. Yeah, go figure there. Who didn't think that was coming? And a decline in applications. So this story is about Bank of America, a Charlotte-based behemoth in the U.S. Is it not, Scott? Uh, Their headquarters right on South Tryon Street in beautiful Charlotte. So Bank of America leak exposes business details of PPP relief applications across the board declines. This is a story from Finextra. So Bank of America accidentally exposed the personal details of applicants applying for PPP loans during a test submission to the U.S. Small Business Administration System on April 22nd. The data exposed individual business addresses and tax identification numbers and personal information such as social security number, phone number, email address, and citizenship. In other words, the holy grail of a data breach. The bank has not disclosed, disclosed the number of customers impacted by the leak, although it says it has processed over 305,000 PPP relief applications with the SBA. Nonetheless, the bank is offering all impacted customers complimentary to your membership in the identity theft protection services provided by Experian. It is also advising clients to scan credit reports and account statements over the next 12 to 24 months for an authorized transactions of identity. So, um, not surprised uh, that there was a data breach um, as fast as we've been moving around PPP Scott you're like me you're a former banker we've both worked at large-scale uh, global companies um, uh, are you like are you like me are you surprised that it actually took this long for a data breach to happen
2: yeah absolutely right I mean I I, I used to work at this particular bank for, for a while Um and I don't think it. they just were the unlucky ones, right? And then somebody forgot to apply a security key or something to encrypt the data before they shipped it over it is bound to happen. These banks are moving so fast to try to get these loans out the door to get the applications in. I, we, we heard and, and helped with so much like ad hoc tech being built to try to automate that process. I'm sure there's more, right? I mean, this is just the first one that came out. I I personally am um, somewhat jaded about data breaches in general and that I think everybody's data is out there already. Like the bank, you know, potentially exposing to other lenders some basic business information, socials, whatever. Again, it sucks, but like it's not the end of the world to me. I think that data is already out there anyway if somebody really wanted it. So it's bad press at worst in my mind. Uh, and is is bound to happen, just given how fast everyone was moving.
0: Yeah, one of the analogies I love to give, and I get paid every time I mention I was on a submarine. Did y'all know I was on submarines in the Navy? Our listeners are like, "Oh my god, he's going there again!" But a cool fact about submarines—they always leak. They are constantly leaking. It's nonstop. Wow. And yes, slightly terrifying fine to go. Yeah, you move. <laughs> on. Is terrifying. It's terrifying. It's always happening. It's it's you, you control the leak, right? It's it's about understanding that it's happening and and how quick. You respond to it and, and control it, and that I think that's the world we live in now. I hate to say it, but you know, it's it's, it's we have new definitions. of Everything. What does trust mean? And The definition of trust. What's that definition of identity mean? You know, and what's the definition of a a data breach mean? I think what surprised me more about this story is the slowdown that we're seeing around PPP loans. You know, I I expected the volume to be extremely high, and what's being reported is that the number of applications and money being returned. Um, to the SBA has actually gone up, which I didn't expect. I mean, is this, uh, is this small business owners just hedging their bet on, on what we're going to yeah. see from an economic turn down?
3: This is. I want to just make one comment on what Scott said about breaches. I mean, the amount of software that got built to do this uh, in a very, very short amount of time, and also the amount of uh, data center moving, just infrastructure moves that people had to make, uh, whether it's uh, private cloud or public cloud, just the amount of just that amount of work um, definitely opens the door, and I also am in, a, in agreement um, that that if you deal with we deal with credential stuffing at scale, uh, so I, I I agree with what Scott's saying. I mean, you know, we have a we have a huge problem, uh, and I'm I'm also curious to hear um, Chime's perspective on credential stuffing. But uh, all that said, um, one of the I, th- I think the more controversial things that that I, I think no, nobody's talking about again is, is that a lot of loans went to pr- basically previous SBA holders. And I don't know if you, maybe 11FS has the numbers on this, but like um, I had a number of people uh, just, and I get, I get, I don't know micro study make, but uh, a number of friends of mine whose businesses were healthy say, Hey, we can get one of these because we're just grandfathered in because we already have an existing SBA, you know, uh, line. Um, and I think that's just something that, you know, I think a lot of people that needed it couldn't get it. And the people that didn't need it got it. But I I have no way of proving that.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of the feedback that I've heard um, from uh, especially the community bankers who did a significant number of loans. And what we've seen is um, those companies that are well capitalized, uh, um, businesses that had great relationship with their banks and already had loans out with them. Did well. And a lot of mom and pops and smaller companies who I, I love, there was actually a planet money podcast talking about this, where they interviewed a, a woman in New York um, that worked for a, a small garage that she just talked about her experience of constantly hitting the, the enter button, trying to get it to submit, you know, for application, just spending literally something like 26 hours, constantly refreshing her screen and hitting hit and going nowhere. So again, this, this impact of COVID not being evenly distributed is what, you know, obviously makes me nervous. But I think, Scott, you raised a really good point. I'm going to come back to you. You talked about the the speed at which, for example, I'll give Bank of America credit. I've talked about this before. When it came around PPP, they spun up their mobile app and website changes in eight days, which for Bank of America is like hours.
2: Yeah. I mean, we we know of other smaller banks, community banks especially, that you know stood up rooms full of people in 24, 48 hours to have them processing things automation that was built on the back end to submit the loans. You know, the the government rolled out a bulk submission process kind of last minute and scrambling to get bulk files together to send that out. I mean, there was just an incredible amount done. And there was also a number of fintechs that stepped up. I know MX put out a product. Uh, Google actually had a a PPP application product. So it, it was a pretty, pretty big response all around.
0: Yeah. One of the early movers was this company called Chime that really owned the press cycle, um, the, uh, that that beta you rolled out, I think it was to a thousand customers. Is that right, Maya? If I got that right?
4: Well, yeah. So we uh, let people that we expected to get a stimulus check, we let them spend that $1,200 early uh, for up to for a thousand of our customers. And then we actually gave a hundred thousand customers the ability to spend $200 of that stimulus check early.
0: Yeah, it's getting back that's to know cool. your customers and be able to move fast right that that speed counts so we talked about that earlier with Shopify just a sure volume of code that was getting pushed um you know Ben I've bragged about what you've been able to do at Bano and the amount and the volume of uh, releases that you guys do on a on a daily basis to be honest I mean what was the stat David that Monzo had about pushing code to production in a single day how many was it uh, so much
1: up to 100 a day and that's usually a normal day yeah ben's like yeah whatever uh that's where we would be
3: that's where we would be too Um,
1: and i think it's i think it's the thing that actually when you're looking at uh the difference between you know players like chime and and some of the older players that's that's the critical thing isn't it because it's a it's not about how fancy your tech is it's about de-risking your whole process right because if every if every release is a massive big thing then the opportunity for you to um balls are up and it'd be a big deal is, is much more significant. So, you know, make your releases really, really small and really, really frequent. And actually you, it's just a great de-risking process.
0: So I've noticed uh, we're on a zoom call, obviously folks, and I've noticed that David's teacup is empty. So we need to take a break so David can get some more Yorkshire tea. So everyone will be back shortly. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Jack Henry Digital, the pioneer and creator of personal digital banking that helps community financial institutions strategically differentiate their digital offerings from those of megabanks, big techs, and fintechs. So how do they do it? With their Bano Digital Platform, a complete 100% API-enabled open digital banking platform. You get beautiful, lightning-fast native apps for your customers and members and cloud-based core-connected back office tools for your employees. You really have to see these products to fully understand the platform's potential. Visit Bano.com to schedule a demo. Okay, now back to the news show where we're going to take a look at some other stories happening in the US this week. So we're going to start with Raisin launches deposit solutions for US banks and credit unions. So this information this story comes from us from FinTech Futures. Raisin, the Berlin-based savings marketplace, has launched a savings as a service software solution for US banks and credit unions looking for cost-effective new deposits. And for U.S. listeners, if you don't know, Berlin has one hell of a fintech scene. The new software solution will allow U.S. banks to offer customized time deposit products. These are interest-bearing bank accounts, which have a preset date of maturity. According to the Federal Reserve economic data cited by Raisin, since the beginning of the year, commercial bank deposits' market volume has grown more than 10%. Raisin says it wants to help retail banks tap this lucrative opportunity and offer a level a personalization only afforded by private banks and no extra cost to the customers. So, uh, David, as our European, I'm calling you European despite Brexit, on this call, what are your thoughts about another European company coming to the US?
1: I take that as a positive, being called European, as somebody who definitely didn't vote for Brexit. Now, I'm, I'm still uh, very much up for being a European at this stage. But, uh, but I mean, it's an interesting one. Raisin have been doing a, a really great job over here uh, really, sort of getting to the heart of uh, a bunch of customer needs. So, um, for everybody who doesn't know, they're, they're backed pretty heavily. Uh, if you kind of look at the, the backers bit behind these guys, it's, it's people like Goldman Sachs and PayPal. So it's not just a, a tiny company kind of coming out of nowhere. And I know that they've um, they've placed roughly twenty five billion dollars uh, in deposit products so far, which is pretty impressive in terms of what they're going after. So I think for me, this this sort of sparks a actually the import-export model that that FinTech has really sort of become globally is really interesting. You know, the players who are doing interesting things in one geography, looking to use that uh, both in terms of the the VC backing that they've got, but also the the use case to take that more globally and see what they can do in another market. We're definitely seeing that with some of the challenger banks. We're, we're now
0: starting to see it with uh, other players as well. So uh, good luck to them. Yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned it, you know, being backed by Goldman Sachs and PayPal, not bad, right? Um, and so that concept of coming in and offering a SaaS offering into the, does this actually play into their investor's wheelhouse? And this concept of doing a SaaS offering in the U.S. Um, I mean, know, isn't
1: Scott, it, as an investor, you're always looking for a bigger community to serve these problems, right? So the U.S. is just such a prime market for lots and lots and lots and lots of people. Um, what, do you,
0: what do you think about this play to come in as a SaaS offering?
2: Yeah, I, I like it a lot. I'm a big fan of the the B2B model, especially in banking services. Um, I you know for those that can crack through with the direct to consumer, like kudos to you and and that's awesome. Uh, but I think there's a whole another pathway for providers that can enable banks in areas where they just can't do it themselves. And I think this is a great one to go after. So. I like it. I mean, I I wasn't super familiar with the company until doing some research recently. It looked like originally their model was direct-to-consumer in Europe, and and then they pivoted into offering more B2B for banks. Uh, It looked like the U.S.-specific offering was more targeted at banks, and I I think that's the right move in this market. Um, Again, kudos to Chime and others that can crack through with direct-to-consumer, but I like the B2B play.
0: Yeah, I'm always interested in these plays of the European uh, fintech companies coming into the U.S. So, you know, for example, um, just down the road from you in L.A., Maya, you got Monzo put their headquarters up um, in Los Angeles. You know, we're going to talk about Aspiration a little bit later and what they've been doing. Um, so, you know, and N 26 coming into the U.S., you know, good on them. Um, but still, you look at the U.S. and you go Chime, Varo, Moneylion. Good job. You know, especially chasing after that consumer market. I mean, what's been the secret sauce? Do you think for you guys?
4: The secret sauce for us, uh, I think, is really it's it's we've got like the one-two punch. So the first, right? It's like, yeah, it's really kind of a kind of a dynamic thing to, to in order to like to grow so quickly. So one, I'm just going to be honest with you, right? Like, basically everyone signs up for time because you get paid up to two days early. That's it. Like, that is the reason why you sign up. People see the ad. They don't even research it. They don't look at any of the details, right? I think a lot of people consider banking to be kind of a commodity product. Being paid up to two days early sounds awesome. Boom. They sign up. So that's why they sign up. There's no, like, brand loyalty. It does. They're not super sold. It's just one feature. Sounds cool. Uh, and then the reason they stay, right, is more around all the transparency, right? We send you a push notification anytime money is taken out of your account. We send you an email anytime you get money in. We send you... It's like so much transparency around your money. You can turn your card off anytime, control over your funds, um, and things like that. So that's what we see. It's like people join for one reason, but then they stay for another reason. Um, And the third piece that's relevant to this conversation is actually the regulatory environment. And that's what I think a lot of the European neobanks have really underestimated. I think with N26, I think a lot of these guys just—they're enticed by the 350 million Americans, but have underestimated how tough it is to to operate a consumer bank here.
0: Um, I would agree with that completely. And it, Ben, you've been living this. Now, when, when did you start at Bano, Ben?
3: A decade ago,
0: I started running okay, software so, a decade ago. Yeah, so Ben's—you've been in the—you've been in the, you've been in the um, trenches for a while on this, and
3: you've lived it. Yeah. My question always to any group of people I'm talking to about the U.S. market is who in this room has been in front of the FFIEC for three weeks? I just wait to see anybody respond. I'm super bearish on raisin. Here's the problem. Like, um, so there's basically three dimensions of the market in the U.S. There could, you could argue for a fourth, but that would be a long tail. You have the big banks so can raise and sell to the big banks that would be question number one these are not leading questions these are just questions to think about second is the sort of regionals and smaller regionals so you have some sort of smaller to you know I, I don't want to get into numbers but you have regional banks um can raise and sell their software as a service into those banks uh, and then you have the community financial institution sort of uh ecosystem or bedrock what i call a bedrock and can you sell into in, into that market Uh, Since you're not going direct to consumer, the other sort of what I would call the fourth dimension would be any of the challenger banks. So can you bring your technology to those challenger banks? And I think the answer is going to be no. And there's a lot of reasons if we want to dig into it, but that's almost a show. Um, So, um, you know, and then back to the regulatory, like I've been through personally three FFIC exams, and I think that's all I can say about them legally (laughs) Uh, and and i mean the big the big sort of elephant i think it's the biggest elephant in the room in the us market is that the regulatory environment is really really challenging in terms of their understanding of of the advancement of technology and so there's this real problem where i'll try to describe this as succinctly as i can how do you interact with a regulator where in which you have to educate that regulator and explain to them how they will regulate you. And no, no auditor or regulator really wants to be rowing in that boat. This is a really weird boat to row in. And um, uh, I feel like I could write a book about that. But 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 that's always a challenge. I'll shut it, up. It there is, and I, I can keep going.
1: I mean, it, it sounds like a very odd boat definitely to be rowing in, but I guess it depends very much on the regulator as well, right? Because I, I think that's, the- Yeah,
3: I didn't want to go I into mean, that, but that's totally true. It depends on which regulator you get, um, which, and, 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 and by the way, the regulators that show up at the financial institution are not the regulators that you will get to talk to in terms of if you are building software for them. You don't get, you don't get to talk to the same people. And that is a huge challenge in the US market. So if you're going to be B2B- that's just a massive challenge. So and so then what happens is that the burden ends up with the bank and their auditor's regulator, regulation group and their due diligence. So how do you solve that problem? We actually solved it. I'm happy to share it, but that's like a show.
0: Oh, that'll be yet another. We've had come up with like five ideas for a show. So maybe this will be a recurring one. David, I started with you, so I'm going to give you the last word. This yeah, story. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's a really interesting one. I think all of the points on the regulator,
1: like regulation, creates the environment for people to do or not do things, and I and I think it, it you know, definitely in any ecosystem we've seen globally, that really changes what it's doing. It starts and ends with the regulator. So, I mean, I, I think your point, Ben, around actually. Um, teaching the regulator how to regulate in new territories, I think, is so interesting, and so much of that for me comes down to whether you've got a regulatory system that's actually willing to learn or not willing to learn. Because um, you know, definitely, what I've I've sort of seen in various different um, jurisdictions is a, a, an unwillingness to to realise that they don't necessarily know best in all cases, which we haven't seen in other geos. You know, there are other geos that are working hand in hand with players to. Um Sort of move the agenda forward for everybody really, but um that 's tart you know admitting you don 't know best as as you were sort of sort of saying ben it 's uh, is a difficult skill set to um to acquire if you 're not used to it so uh it'll be interesting to see how this one plays out. i do wonder um I mean to your classification Ben, I do wonder if they might go in and aim at uh, a collection of either uh, community or regional banks, because I think that's, a, particularly in the US market, it's such a sweet spot for for um, sort of SaaS and pass plays that actually, if you, similar to what we were talking about low-end SMEs earlier on, if you can strap enough um, community banks together, there is a really interesting opportunity there, I think, for uh, less well-known uh, SAS and pass-based players. But uh, it takes a bit of
0: convincing, but um, you never know where they can get. All right, so let's move from a Berlin-based um, solution coming to the U.S. to one that's homegrown here. So story on TechCrunch about Aspiration. So the LA-based fintech focused on conscientious consumerism, and it's hard to say, they've raised $135 million. So Aspiration's hook, if you will, is to differentiate themselves from other fintechs in the market with a focus on sustainability and conscious consumerism. beyond Life is an investment app, like Wealthfront with Portfolio Sustainable Investments, has since branched out into financial management and banking services and has a reported 1.5 million American customers. The company's seen 4 billion in transactions pass through its accounts. So there's a whole suite of new services designed to help customers go green, too. So the company plants a tree for every debit card purchase that its customers make when they round up to the nearest dollar, a premium subscription tier that enables debit cards made from recycled ocean plastic. And the card offers higher cashback and interest rates and a feature that offsets the carbon emissions. Of every mile a customer drives, they also have partnerships with socially conscious companies like Tom's and Warby Parker, giving his customers extra cashback rewards when they shop at those businesses. And one of their co-founders, Andre Cherney, I'd say he's a friend of the pod and here at 11FS, interesting character with, believe it or not, a political background um, uh, of all things. So, you know, Maya, one of the things you said when I talked about the secret sauce with Chime is a very simple proposition to get customers to start with. Right, Keep things simple, keep the choices down, and then offer that whole plethora uh, of product offerings. And it sounds like Aspiration has kind of figured that out, too.
4: Yeah, I am uh, heartened to hear of their fundraise. I I feel like I've been hearing about it for a year, but it was announced. Um, Very exciting. There were some rumors that Aspiration was dead. Yeah. But I'm I'm excited to see I I've had I have an aspiration account I use it I've had it for a long time I have like ten thousand dollars in their Redwood fund Um, as a consumer I'm I'm really excited about what they're doing and I feel like they have this potential to um, do really cool stuff like you could imagine right every time you swipe your debit card they show you in the app if you're buying from a good business or not and that if you even gamify that there's like a really interesting opportunity there but. I think in general, their offering has been pretty complicated to appeal to like a really mass market and grow really quickly.
0: Yeah. And it's simplicity is everything, right? I mean, I I know at 11 Fest we talk about that all the time, right? Keep it simple, keep it deep um, and and blow people's socks off. And and Scott, I know in your engagement with your customers, you kind of say the same thing. Do you think do you think the message is somewhat muddled at times with aspiration?
2: Yeah, it's interesting because there's a dimension of it, which I really like, which is the social conscious. Like, I, I think that's hitting on something that will resonate with people and that we see others doing as well. But yeah, I think the, the product complexity is a problem, um, especially when you're first introducing the product, right? It's one thing to build out that over time with additional features or products, but it's got to be a really clean value proposition from the very beginning. And I, and I do think it's, it's a little overcomplicated at the moment.
1: I'd I'd completely agree with that. I think it's we always sort of say about whether it's a is this a product or is it a feature. Um, It feels to me like this is more like in the feature side of things that actually, uh, you know, every organization could swing to this side and then make that proposition completely irrelevant to to really creating any sort of sustainable differentiation. Um, You know, post purchase um understanding of those things is is quite difficult isn't it because it's like um it's like telling me how many calories are in a big mac after i've ate the big mac you know i mean like i i kind of need that information before i eat the big mac and then i can start making better decisions but uh it's a um it's an interesting one but uh, i think with you know we've got huge players like BlackRock coming out with um, you know, very different agendas that are there, and you know, opening up to completely different ways of them doing sort of distribution for for different sort of products as well. Um, I'd say, um, I'd say, for me, this feels more like a feature than a product, really.
4: Well, and how much does it does it cost? Because I think it costs maybe ten dollars a month. And I think for entering a recession, if we're in a recession, charging ten dollars a month for an online bank account is a really hard sell.
1: Turns out, it it costs money to save the
0: planet. It's it's a hard thing to do, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, it, Ben, I'm, I'm curious from your standpoint because um, you know Bano is part of Jack Henry, but correct me uh, if I'm wrong on here, but you actually have to do some internal selling to Jack Henry clients around Bano, right? So you got to have a value prop to present to them.
3: Yeah. So the way I think of it, and this would apply to Aspiration, is is how do you build a moat at all in financial services, and and how do you build something that, that's a long term moat? And so we have our strategy and. You know about what we're doing. We 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 what we've been trying to do is like how do you help community financial institutions build a competitive uh, moat in this time of extreme disruption, where in which they've never been disrupted like this ever. Um, and that's the big question we're always asking um, in everything that we're building. Um, and the succinct way to say it is for us, we're helping them differentiate on relationships and service, right? So uh, and we still think that can win. Um, but it, it's going to be increasingly challenging for the community financial institution up against like an aspiration. Now that I, I agree with every, all the comments about aspiration, uh, I really like those guys. I, I, I met some of the technology folks, uh, early on when they were starting, um, and had some conversations with them. So, you know, um, but again, like, are you building a long-term business? Like, and if you are, then you need to have a moat yet. You, you have to have some kind of moat. Go ahead, Scott. I'll shut up. But,
2: yeah, no, no. no not, not trying to interrupt you. I should say, to me, the better version of this is someone like Bank of the West who has a very environmentally conscious, like everything about their yeah. brand and their persona. I agree. But it's built yeah. off of a core banking business and model and everything else.
0: Ooh, look mm. at that. That's a first shout out, I think, to Bank of the West on 11FS Pintech Insider. So, David, we have a moment. Take a drink. We should all just take a drink at that. And that's a part of the drinking game. All right. Let's move on quickly. Uh, to the next story, just going to touch on this. The New York Stock Exchange reopened, uh, but with some changes. BBC News reported on this. I do like that it's the BBC News reporting on the New York Stock Exchange. That makes me happy, but I like the BBC. So the New York Stock Exchange has reopened its trading floors after a two-month closure due to the coronavirus pandemic. But as new social distance rules come into effect, the exchange looks different and feels different. And the New York Stock Exchange changes. Only a quarter of the normal number of traders will be allowed to return to work. Traders must also avoid public transport. Sorry. Good luck with that. Wear masks and follow strict social distancing with newly fitted transparency barriers to keep people apart. They'll also be screened, have the temperatures taken as they enter the building. Anyone who fails to pass the check will be barred until the last test negative for coronavirus or self-quarantine in accordance with U.S. government guidelines. We have U.S. government guidelines? Really? Shocking. To return to their jobs, floor traders also have to sign a liability waiver that prevents them from suing the New York Stock Exchange if they ever get infected at the exchange. Media, organizers, media organizations that normally broadcast from the trading floor won't be allowed into the space until further notice. So I'm so sick of this comment of the new normal. Um, I would say that 11FS has been the new normal from our get-go because we've done remote work from Day one. Uh, David, actually, the transition for us, for our folks to go home and work, uh, was relatively simple. Um, I I think, you know, you did a town hall, you told us to go home, and we went home. I mean, that worked well. I I mean, there's many of
1: I'm sure people on this now, I mean, when you're set up remotely in the first place, then everything you're doing is for, you know, how are you setting up collaboration tools from the get-go and how are you setting up so you can do face-to-face communication regardless of where you are? I think all of those things are critical. And I think this this is a weird story, isn't it? Because they they sort of put out the fact that they're, I mean, they're doing a lot of like, hey, we're putting in loads of measures uh, and just in case the measures don't work, we've signed away the liability for anybody going in to do it. You know, So it's like uh, either you worry about that's you know if, if at 11fs we were like okay guys we're going to go back into the office um just in case we ball this up and one of you dies can everybody sign this for i mean i'm not sure that's yeah. necessarily the way to um the way to go with this one but um i mean with the the, the stock market getting these things back and going I, I imagine these guys must be facing quite a lot of governmental pressure to try and resuscitate the economy a bit little bit and kind of get this stuff kind of up there and moving um, but I'd be interested to know what you guys know who um, know a little bit more about the U.S. economy than I do.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can tell you from both large uh, corporations as well as some smaller businesses we've talked to, the whole waiver thing is is a pretty normal expectation. And that most businesses we've talked to that are going to allow people back into the office, they're requiring some combination of self-assessment at home of the employee to do temperature check or something and essentially sign off before they come in, that they've done those things and that they are coming in at their own liability. And I can tell you as a business owner, like we're, I mean, we're sorting through this right now. If we're the same of like, we've got no issue being at home and it's fine, but we still have a nice office that we would like to eventually allow people back into. Uh, so we have to think about how we do that. And, and we've been really struggling with this of, it's such a polarizing thing in the U.S. I think that's the other thing from talking to colleagues in other parts of the world that maybe not as, is not as clear. Like, you know, I talked to a friend in Scotland they're like, yeah, we're not allowed to go outside except for our walk today. I'm like, Oh, interesting. And you, you do that. Like you, you follow that. Oh yes. That's just what you do. And it's like, Oh, well, like, I go to the grocery store and like, you know, only 20% of people are wearing a mask and, and the other 80 are either like trying to yell at me because I am wearing one or arguing <laughs> over whether we should or not. Like like thinking of a work environment and getting people back in there and that, that dichotomy of like opposing points of view, it, it's a real challenge as a business owner to figure out how to solve for that. It, so, it really is I, I, do you yeah. know what? I think that
1: is a really interesting view because essentially you've got a you've got a really expensive storage unit with all of your work stuff in right now you know and it's 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 hard to know really what to do for the best there isn't it but it's it is amazing how and we've you know we've had the um the ability to talk to lots of people in different geos and the the geographical spread of how people are handling this is just is phenomenal you know speaking to somebody in uh Latvia today everything is normal um you know singapore things are kind of getting back to normal uh, in the uk i haven't worn shoes for 3 weeks because i haven't needed to leave my house in a real way you know so it's just it's just such a, a change in how people are kind of reacting
0: yeah i mean i think about san francisco for maya i think the only house guest you've had is a bat that flew around your house while you were doing a conference call that i saw on twitter which was really cool and ben <laughs> you got that rat out in your barn that is floating around somewhere on zoom right now uh just real quick a yes or no question um ben i'm assuming at bano you've been remote well before any of this stuff happened yes or no yeah
3: we were remote centric a decade ago and, and jack yeah, henry's shocker. very remote centric too so and my i'm Hun- assuming
0: at chime that was the
3: norm
4: well Chime was not not a big remote org actually really? um almost yeah really Almost everyone of that headquarters in San Francisco. And just recently we opened our second office in Chicago. Um, so we've all transitioned to remote now and everyone's working from home and it's okay, but historically not a big remote organization.
0: I, I didn't know you guys were in Chicago. We're going to have to do a separate story on Chicago. I love the fact that you guys did that. Um, all right. So folks, we got to move on because we're closing into the, the show. So just to round up some of the other stories from the week that we didn't have time to cover because there's so much happening. Uh, it's rather crazy. So, these stories do deserve a shout out. So we're going to go on these really quick. So David, here we go. Rapid fire. You ready? Drink? Yeah, tea. sure. Let's go. All right.
1: All right. Uh, first story was over on FinExtra. So this is Google is testing voice confirmation for payments. So Google is going to be featuring uh, and releasing this feature to let people authorize purchases with their voice, which is uh, an interesting one. The trial, uh, spotted by some of the Android police, as they're lovingly required to, uh, lets people add and confirm with voice match option with uh, using Google's assistant setting. Currently, this is only available to some users. The feature is part of a pilot for assistant-enabled speakers and smart to I'm not sure this is going to catch on. Like, It's going to be very much a weird thing for me to do on the train, uh, but let's
0: see how this this catches on. All right, our next story is a PR Newswire. A Finestra Global Survey shows appetite for open banking picking up the pace worldwide. 86% of global banks surveyed are looking to use open APIs to enable open banking capabilities in the next 12 months. Banks believe regulators are stifling innovation. Almost half, 48%, believe regulation is too tight and there's not enough government or industry support to foster innovation. Open banking's on the top in 2020 compared to 2019. The percentage of financial institutions looking to leverage open APIs has substantially increased in the US at a plus 23% in UK, plus 17%, 83% of financial institutions and banks agree that regulation regarding fintech innovation should be harmonized across different geos. And I'm just laughing at Ben who yawned and Maya who's like, yeah, whatever. All right, David, quick, next story.
1: Over on FinTech Futures. So we had that Money Dashboard appoints ex-PayPal CEO as chair. So personal finance app Money Dashboard has appointed former PayPal CEO as their new chairman, Lehman, uh, Lehman's. I think, I mean, I'm terrible at pronouncing names, but Rainer Lehman's. Uh, You're going to have to get in touch and complain if I got that wrong, but uh, has served as a board member at several firms in the financial services industry, including Revolut. Uh, Money Dashboard claims to have more than 500,000 registered users and helps them connect their banks via open banking to manage their finances. I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, Money Dashboard has been around almost before open banking was a thing, um, and I guess at this stage to have 500,000 users is good, but maybe not great.
0: So uh, let's keep tabs on this one and see what happens. All right. Last stories in FinTech future. Specific National Bank Lodge is a digital challenger. Facile? Facile? With Nimbus? I have no idea how to even say that. The funniest part of the story to me, and I might be having an um, Anchorman moment here because I'm reading the notes. Pacific National Bank, PNB, is a Florida-based bank. Okay, so if you don't know geography, the Pacific doesn't even come close to Florida, where I live, but I'm reading the notes like Anchorman and hoping that's right. So Pacific National Bank, a Florida-based bank with $665 million in assets, has rolled out a new digital bank called FACILE. I'm guessing that's how you say that, F-A-C-I-L-E. Guys ping me, let me know how bad I slaughtered that. With the help of its core banking provider, Nimbus, PNB's free Fee free digital bank will target Florida's financially mindful young professionals and tech savvy adults. Nimbus underpins the bank's technology, back office operations, including a call center and digital marketing, with many of America's digital banks offering little or no human customer support. BNB CEO hopes having a responsive and around the clock personalized customer service with all the digital trimmings will help this stand out amid established standalone challengers. Uh, good luck. That's all I'll say. Um, And of course, let's finish up with uh, one of the stories that we all love to do, the and this story. So Animal Crossing. (laughs) The Telegraph has a report that how Animal Crossing is providing a new way for people to make money during the lockdown. For those who don't know, Animal Crossing players maintain an island paradise by picking fruit and fishing, all in the hope of earning enough in-game money to buy new furniture or clothing. Every week, Players can invest in turnips in the hope that the price will increase before they rot in seven days. I apologize for laughing. I know this is serious. Savvy investors have used networks of contacts and virtual time travel to seek the highest prices for their turnips. And is this a real story? You're all pranking me. Um, To seek the highest prices for their turnips in order to become immensely wealthy in the game. Many sell their virtual riches on sites like eBay for real world cash. Attaching a real life value to digital goods can cause trouble. However, prolific traders started hiring virtual bouncers last month to prevent in game turnip heists. I really am having a hard time with this story. Turnip traders suffered a setback last month when the in game bank lowered interest rates and only offered illegal rug as an apology, a digital rug as an apology. I don't even know what to say, Uh, Ben. At Bano, have you built a virtual turnip gamification application
3: for your customers? I don't know what to say <laughs> about this. I mean, I watched my kids play it, uh, and it's fascinating. I can understand the, 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 the uh, sort of addictive nature that they, they create, but it is it is somewhat educational in terms of how economics work. You know, it's fascinating. I don't know. I, I don't have any any comment on this, Sam. cheese. how do they land on turnips? Well,
0: you're the only one here that lands on, that lives on a farm in Iowa. Do you grow turnips, Ben? Out of curiosity, we, we do got grow a there. lot of things. We do grow a lot of things. I, do, I bet Nothing you do illegal.
2: Uh, hey, just, Sam, I've I've got two two anecdotes. We apparently have an Animal Crossing channel in Slack from one of our employees that I just went and took a peek at. Uh. Two most interesting things on a quick stand are a scanner. Apparently, there is a character named Zell, uh, which is hilarious to, to in people internally because it's a US based P2P product called Zell. It's hilarious. actually uh, funny. funny. Yeah. And there's weekly weekly announcements from people telling others how much their turnup prices are I guess trying to to get them to buy them from them so i, I never <laughs> knew what that meant or what that was for but now I'm educated so, now so I'm wondering if do there's
3: we- a slack channel for for it's this- <laughs> Crazy I just
0: crap. I don't know. So do you think likely ben, that Shopify is going to do an announcement for Animal Crossing partnership
1: in the near future?
0: Um, probably next week. at the rate You never the know. Right. If there's if there's money
1: to be made in it, I think there's a good chance they might get into it. But um, I mean, it's an interesting one. Like I, they're definitely. So I know James Cook, who wrote this article over at uh, The Telegraph. I know he had a lot of good fun, like uh, so many years of journalism to end up writing an, a, an article around Animal Crossing. It's uh, it's a funny world, isn't it? But uh, it, do you know what? It's an interesting thing around how, the, again, you know, fintech really sort of bleeding into uh, other industries. You know, we talked earlier on. Sorry, I made this serious, didn't I? I know this should have yeah. been the funny one. But, you know, payments and capability and all of these things, it's, it's moving where these things are and, and really what's important. Because, I mean, when we were all probably a little bit younger, like um, – you know, it would have been about the fantasy football league or something like that. But, you know, Animal Crossing is such a, a huge thing now and real money is changing hands. I, I think there's this sort of reference in the notes here around, uh, you know, even on Fiverr now, we have, uh, if you don't, guys don't know Fiverr, it's a, a freelance website to, to, to sort of help people with tiny little uh, task that you do. Digital landscape gardener is one of the most requested things that people are kind of looking for. So it is insane how these things really sort
0: of um, get into uh, mainstream really, really quickly. So everything old is new again. I, I remembered this while you were talking. Remember back in 2011, Capital One paid Zynga to put a virtual bank in Farmville. By the way, this I just for some weird reason remember that story. Cap one, they did. They had a digital. Everybody was crazy about Farmville back in the day. Uh, back in 2011, the game was huge. in Zynga, if you remember, when they were going to IPO and everything was crazy then. So I don't know. I mean, I go. mean, I, I feel like we've learned a lot of things today, right? I, I think
1: like <laughs> uh, Farmville was really ahead of its time. Submarines are always leaking. Always. I mean, <laughs> I, I think this is what you come to FedTech Insider for. Really,
0: bats are protected. Right? That we have bats, we have rats. Like we we've learned so many things. And 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 believe it or not, we're out of time. There you go. This flies by. So I want to thank everybody for joining. And I want to let people know where they can find out more about you. Because honestly, from a having guests on the show, this was an all-star episode that we've had. So Ben, starting with you, what's the best place for people to find out more about you? I can't wait for this answer.
3: I don't have a good answer to that. You can find me Probably the place. Yeah, you can find me on Instagram under Mets Ben, but I don't post much there. It's pretty random. Um, But yeah, I, I'm i a
2: recluse. I love Ben.
0: I love you so much. All right, Scott, how about you and Level? Best place?
2: Uh Yeah, we're going to go level.io, level with two Vs, dot .io. And, and any conference, when
0: we go back to conferences, just look up a panel out in the will world and easily one of the best Twitter accounts out there Maya best place to find out more about you and engage with you and chime
4: yeah definitely uh my Twitter account I think probably if you're listening to this podcast you might already follow me on Twitter but it's M-A-I-A-B uh and I post there a lot and you can learn more about chime at chime.com
0: and you'll learn how much she hates cooking this has been an obsession that she hates cooking thanks a lot COVID as for me at Sam All on Twitter, best place. David, what about you? It's going to be LinkedIn. Uh, over that.
1: on LinkedIn most of the time these days. So
0: David Breer over on LinkedIn. Very good answer there. Uh, I would highly encourage you to check out David and my morning show over on LinkedIn Live every day, um, 8.30 a.m. in the UK and 10.30 a.m. Eastern time in the US. We've had Maya on. We have had Ben on. Scott, we will put you in the queue. Thanks for listening, everybody. Like what you heard. Subscribe to our podcast. Don't forget to leave us a review, and don't forget to make it five stars. Otherwise, don't leave the review. It helps us to make it better, and it helps others find the show. Write comments, because David, he scrolls through these at night. This is what he does when he can't sleep. Speaking of which, if you know someone who loves FinTech, who isn't listening to FinTech Insider, pass the pod along. And tell them about the show if you have suggestions or feedback find us on social media just search for 11fs or fintech insider or email podcast at 11fs.com thanks everybody for listening hope you enjoyed the show